Hello, everybody. Are we recording? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I didn't ask you. Let's just keep this in. Whatever. Let's do it. This is how it goes. Today is Sunday, April 26th. This is episode one of season two of Tell Me What You Know. Today's also my father's birthday. We recorded my mother's birthday two weeks ago. Oh, wow. Now my dad's birthday. So happy birthday, dad. Happy birthday, dad. Yeah. A lot of April birthdays. Mr. Brown. Now I'm pretty much done for the year. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, this is the first episode of the second season. Uh, this is when we figure we figured it out. Yes. We we know. we know exactly what we're doing. We're really getting into stride. Yes. Uh, so welcome welcome back. Whereas the inaugural episode was tell me what you know about podcasts. We already know everything about podcasts. Yeah. Oh. Oh. We're way ahead of that yes. now. Podcast geniuses. We've learned everything. Yeah. Um. So a few changes, very small changes coming uh, to the show moving forward. We kind of wanted to add a little bit more structure to the shows, add a little bit more content to each episode as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so going forward, we're going to be inst- instituting a new segment at halftime between the topic discussions. So after uh, we complete the discussion around my topic, as we typically do, I go first typically. We'll take a quick break, and we're going to add in this new segment called One Thing I Learned, and we're going to discuss something that we've each learned over the last <laughs> seven days. If it wasn't Small, obvious from the, from correct. the title. Correct. Uh, and then after that, we're going to, we'll jump into Michael number two's topic, and that will be the end of the show. The conversation here uh, in this little interim halftime break doesn't necessarily relate to the episode's theme. It's probably going to be just random. Uh, but we wanted to get like a little weekly segment for people to look forward to and to kind of just, just to add a little break in the show. Yeah. I always hated the, uh, are, are you done? Is that it? Yeah. Is that it with yours? Cause even if you enjoy the topic, <laughs> it just sounds like, yeah, you finished. Hey, are you done okay, talking good. so I can talk now? Yeah. Right. <laughs> that will still happen. There'll just be something else after That's that. A, yeah. It'll be a nice little break. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so, so that'll be the, the one thing I learned will be the new segment we're going to be adding in. Uh, other than that, looking forward to another 52 episodes, another 104 topics, and hopefully some interviews. Yes, a lot more interviews. A lot more interviews coming up. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into this week's topics. We can. I thought we were going to banter a little bit about Kim Jong-un. Oh, yeah, we should. All right. Hey, did you hear about it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but as we typically do when the show starts off, we kind of just don't have anything planned. We're going to talk about some stuff like... So, you said that you they've gotten the all clear that Kim Jong-un is okay. I, I thought Japan had said he died. Yeah, he, maybe he died. Now South Korea is saying they, they, they say he's alive and well. Oh, this fake news world we're living in. I just want his hot sister to take over. Oh, I think that would be... I mean, I think it would be a pretty interesting little um, little change of change of scenery if, we, if we've not. got some autocrat woman running around. Yeah. Doing crazy stuff. She looks like... Uh, Killing off generals. She looks like a like a like a villain from a, a like a Marvel movie. Yeah, looks like that. Yeah, like uh, Imp- Empress Deathstrike, like the bad Wolverine. Well, I don't feel like we've had a, a an Lady evil an evil female leader since like Cleopatra. I don't I don't, I don't even know if I would include her she as an evil, evil leader. She was just she just wanted love. A I think seductress. Right? right. She got bit by an asp. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what's going on with Kim Jong Un. <laughs> <laughs> just die so we can get the sister. <laughs> yeah, it would just add to the movie that is 2020 so far. Yeah, like. yeah, exactly. A new villain steps into the ring. Yeah, I, I think. It'd but be she's really been. I mean, what I, from what I've read on her, she's like, there's there wouldn't be any like holding back from her. She's like a total iron fist dictator. No, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I bet she'd even be big probably time, worse. Big time in like the like the propagation of censorship and everything over there. She's like, yeah. Oh, she's probably way smarter than than this guy is. Yeah, this kid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. And I think she's like they—they they don't know how old she is, which is crazy. But they say she's like maybe young, like young thirties, early thirties, mm. or maybe she's like one hundred and thirty. Yeah, no one knows. <laughs> she that, she takes off that little lace ribbon around her neck, and her head falls off. Her head falls. <laughs> she's just a bi biomechanical woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. On the first episode of the second season of Tell Me What You Know, we start off with a conversation on kamikaze. Meaning divine wind in Japanese, these special attack units were responsible for more than 4,900 casualties and 34 sunken ships in World War II. Like a bee that dies after having stung, these pilots were set on trading their lives in an effort to turn the tide of war. And then, we're talking about jogging. 
running's less intense little sister, designed to get you off the couch, outside, and moving your body. Running has been used as a punishment in olden times, but in our modern world, we use running to chisel our bodies, clear our minds, and shut down roads for race days. Lace up those Nikes and do your best Prefontaine impression, because we're sprinting into season two of Tell Me What You Know. Before I get into my topic, I want to talk about the state of Georgia for a second, because they've been on a hot streak. Uh, one, the reopening thing that I think got called back. I don't really know exactly what the ultimate thing was there. Do you know? Did it get called back? I, I have no idea. Are they not fully opening uh, salons and, and I, I don't know. I don't know what the final call was. That was supposed Sports to happen last clubs. weekend, right? Not the point. No, I think it's happening May 1st. May 1st? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's tomorrow. Well, the latest news. Uh, did you see their new driving laws? I saw a headline about this, and I have not looked into it. Something so about being able to get a license without having to do a test or anything. Yeah, there's no in-car test during the pandemic. So you just do your online, I guess, like your pass the whatever test there. You're supposed to do 40 hours of in-car practice, and they're just <laughs> – I think somebody said, you know, I'm hoping that parents won't just sign off on this. They'll <laughs> actually give their kids the 40 hours. People in Georgia can't drive anyway. Atlanta yeah. is nuts. Yeah. And now you're just going to send people out without having any form, of, any form of test? Yeah. Anybody can have a driver's license in Georgia now. Huh. I also read mostly headlines, so there could be more <laughs> to it, but I'm going to go with, but they're just crazy. So if you're 16, all you got to do is fill out this form, hmm. say you did 40 hours of driving. Correct. And you get it. Maybe there's like an online test or something, but as did you, you know, you can cheat those. In North Carolina, how did how did it go with you getting your driver's license? Did you have to have a permit process oh, yeah. and then you get it at 16? Yeah, 15, we got our permit. For a full year before? For a full year. Full year. But for the first six months of that, you couldn't drive. It might have been the whole year. You can't drive after 9. Oh, there's a time. Yeah, after 9 p.m. Um, that, so that was from 15. And then at 16, for the first six months, for sure, you could you had to have... If you were driving after nine, you had to have a parent in the car with you hmm. or like somebody over a certain age. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you could only like do like during the day driving. Gotcha. Stuff like that. Huh. And you had to like do the in car. You had to pass the test at the DMV. The written test and the... Get, make sure your vision's okay. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's similar. Arizona was six months permit. Yeah. And then once you're 16, you there weren't any other... Uh, right. And you also have your driver's Things license that, yeah. for like 70 years. And you got, yeah, you got a 70 year license or whatever it is. A long, so long time. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Georgia, I don't know what, the, what you're thinking. I mean, a lot of these things seem so like common sense. Yeah. Like, why would you do this? But anyway, hey. hello to all our friends in Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> or ex friends now. Anyway, <laughs> let's get into today's topic. Michael, tell me what you know about kamikaze. Like, the Japanese pilots, kamikaze, uh, suicide pilots mm -hmm. that fly their planes straight into their targets. Yeah. That's, that's a kamikaze. That's pretty much it. Uh, <laughs> there's another, isn't there like a drink? There's a shot, I think. A shot. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to talk about that. Kamikaze shot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's what I know about it, basically. The, right. the Japanese, that would very honorable death, Mm. Uh, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you die for your country, flying your plane straight into a enemy, a ship. Yeah. Yeah. So kamikaze means divine wind or spirit wind in Japanese. Hmm. It was a part of a Japanese special attack unit. They were military aviators who carried out these suicide attacks for Japan against the Allied forces in World War II. Mm -hmm. Um, these the attack. The idea was they would more effectively destroy warships than you know attacks at, from range right plus that the hull was a lot bigger the payload was a lot bigger on these things it was basically so they're like a flying bomb yeah mm -hmm. at, at first they started they were using just you know dive bombers and other uh, aircraft and then eventually they started making specific kamikaze planes that were just loaded with explosives and other bombs and all that kind of stuff right so you don't have to worry about maybe the bomb not de detonating or... It was going to make some explosions. It was going to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some numbers I got. 3,800 kamikaze pilots died during the war, and they killed more than 7,000 naval personnel from the Allied forces. Oh, so it's like two to one? Yeah, but don't you think it'd be more than that? Yeah, yeah, you'd think. I mean, maybe a lot of them weren't successful, I think. So like a lot of them didn't hit their targets. They got blown up out of the air before they got there. Right, they just, they're just... 
getting shot at as they're approaching the, the yes the ship. But they're yeah, basically they're pilot guided explosive missiles, right? They got explosive bombs, torpedoes on these planes, running right into ships. Yeah, nineteen percent of the attacks were successful. Nineteen percent. Yeah. Oh, I would have thought higher. Yeah. Huh. Well, we'll talk about some defense and stuff like that. Okay. But uh, so why use kamikaze to begin with? It started in October of 1944. At this point, Japan had been suffering a lot of critical military defeats. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. I'm. I'm so. You're thinking Pearl Harbor, aren't you? Well, I'm thinking that yeah, they would have just this. I I always thought of it as being more a part of their culture. Like this was not something. As like a last well, stand. So it goes thing. back to the samurai and Bushido code, right? Where it's like uh, loyalty until death instead of all that other kind of stuff, right? Gotcha. But they didn't actually start the special attack unit until October 1944. Okay. Or that's when the first missions went. They got, Obviously, the, the plan was in place. It well, wasn't was just the first like mission. the next day we're going to do this, but they were training and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? So uh, before that, they had suffered a lot of crit- critical military defeats. Um, they had super outdated aircraft and the number of experienced pilots they had was dropping because they were in worse aircraft than their enemies. They were getting hmm. shot out of the sky, newer pilots. So they sucked at flying all that kind of stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they, they were losing aerial parity with, with the allied forces uh-huh. and they had this unwillingness to surrender just as like a core component of, of the Japanese at the time. I guess. Right. 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 Yep. Uh, they had, like I said, they had the tradition of death instead of defeat, capture, or shame, which goes back to the Samurai and Bushido Code, loyalty and honor until death. Um, so while the intentional idea of kamikaze started in 1944, there are theories and, and stories about pilots uh, that made deliberate decisions to crash into the enemy um, if their planes became badly damaged and stuff like that, so like Pearl Harbor and things like that. Right? Yeah, yeah. They're like, oh, well, instead of just trying to land or whatever, I'm done, or- I'm just going to... Take yeah. out the enemy, right? Yeah. Right. So, uh, 1944, Battle of Leyte Gulf in the Philippines. The Allied forces, they started an assault on the Suluan Island in the Philippines. Uh, and this is one of the last major naval battles of World War II, the Leyte Gulf battle. So, the Imperial Japanese Navy's first air fleet uh, was going to aid their naval ships in fighting against the Allied attack. They only had 40 total aircraft at the time. And having such a small fleet... Vice Admiral Takajiro Nishi, he formed the special attack unit. He was quoted as saying, I don't think there would be any other certain way to carry out the operation to hold the Philippines than to put a 250-kilogram bomb on a zero and let it crash into a U.S. carrier in order to disable her for a week. So he's like, what else are we going to do? we got to yeah. turn the tide of this war somehow. Yeah. Let's try this. Um, so you have the first unit. Mm-hmm. A Japanese commander asked a group of 23 pilots he had personally trained to volunteer for the special attack unit. All 23 volunteered. Uh, this is where, you know, the story, I feel like, who actually knows if they were like, yeah, I'll do it, or they're like, oh, I don't know, like, I guess I have to. I don't really to. have a not. Yeah. Right. right. They all volunteered. Also, just getting in, it does make more sense that if this is like a last stand, mm-hmm. that you're not going to want to, you know, hey, these are like our best pilots. These are really good pilots. I trained them. You might not want to ask them to do something that they only do one time. It's on, it's like, you know, it's like if you're a, a bee and you sting, that's all you got. Wow. Have you read my notes? <laughs> no. I did. Right. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the same commander, uh, he asked Lieutenant Yukio Seki to command the force and join it as well. And Seki was reluctant to do so, but he did. And he said, Japan's future is bleak. If it is forced to kill one of its best pilots and I'm not going on this mission for the emperor or for the empire, I'm going because I was ordered to. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's the first unit, right? Following orders. You have these subunits. You have unit Shikishima, unit Yamato, unit Asahi, and unit Yamazakura. And these names were taken from a patriotic death poem in Japan, hmm. which roughly translates or more accurately so that the, Literal translation didn't make much sense, but there's a better translation that says, asked about, the, <clears throat> excuse me, asked about the soul of Japan, I would say that it is like wild cherry blossoms glowing in the morning sun. So like the cherry blossoms are the uh, Yamasakura and the Asahi is the morning sun, that kind of thing, right? So these are the subunits that all made up the kamikaze mission. Gotcha. There was a part that I read about recruitment as well, which I thought was pretty interesting because like how do you get people to do this kind of thing. Yeah. Apparently there were tons of volunteers. Uh, So much so that a captain said they were like a swarm of bees. 
huh. and that bees die after they have stung. Yeah. <laughs> like you just said. A yeah. Ago. It was crazy. Huh. Yeah. Uh, when the volunteers showed up to begin their training and to carry out the, the, the attacks and everything, there were twice as many men as there were aircraft. They, <laughs> this blew my mind. They, uh, they were so adamant about being part of this like unit that sometimes they would put extra people in planes to like encourage the pilots, which seems like a total superfluous loss of life. Wait, incur- yeah. Like, like you can, I don't know. I guess you just sit like you're just riding shotgun. So it's kind of like, here's your, here's your wingman through this, through the end of death that you guys can kind of share this together. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So maybe, maybe they were seeing pilots sort of wuss out towards the end and that if they were if they weren't solo well they, they felt said, more like a team going going together well, and it also could have been like a check on them right because they said if you don't if you can't find your target or whatever come back don't you know don't let your life go for nothing that kind of thing yeah one guy came back nine times and was shot what <laughs> yeah you couldn't find your target nine times and then it just blew his head off i guess they shot him yeah wow yeah oh so, what a dishonorable way to, to go right Right. Should have just flown that plane and, apparently, and it would have been over. I'm not going to get too much into it, but the training for this was like they just beat the shit out of you because they were like... Uh, oh, so it's, it's almost more like a mental yeah. training. Yeah. You can fly a plane. It's supposed to get your spirit for war up or something, but I think it just disillusioned a lot of the pilots. They were like, this is terrible. This is war. horrible. I can't, like, I can't see my face. It's unrecognizable. Wow. All that kind of stuff. That's horrible. So we'll go to the actual first kamikaze attack, right? The Battle of Leyte Gulf. We'll go back to that. We were talking about that earlier. Um. The first ones were actually outside of the special attack unit. So on October 21st, 1944, a plane crashed into the HMAS Australia. It killed 30 crew members, including the captain, and wounded 64 others, which included the Australian Force Commander, Commodore John Collins. This plane uh, apparently was not, this like part, it was just a, a plane that was going down and made, had heard about the whole thing going on. So he was like, I'm just going to ram it. Yes, I'm just going to ram it. I think it still counts, right? Uh, and then the ocean tug USS Sonoma was the first vessel sank due to kamikaze. Again, the aircraft was not part of that special attack unit. Still counts in my book. It's a kamikaze, kamikaze mm-hmm. mission, right? Mm-hmm. Four days later, October 25th, 1944, the special attack force carried out its first mission. Five a six M zeros were escorted to the battle site. They hit the USS Kitkin Bay, uh, hit a catwalk and then cartwheeled into the ocean. Uh, the USS Fanshawe Bay was act- this plane was actually uh, taken out by anti-aircraft gun before it was able to hit, mm-hmm. and then two aircraft targeted uh, the USS White Plains. Um, one was under heavy fire and aborted its mission and actually diverted and hit the USS Saint Lo. It hit the flight deck, massive explosion, <clears throat> ultimately sunk the ship. Wow. Yeah, and I don't know what the other. I guess the other one tried to carry out a Fanshawe Bay attack. Anyway. Uh, by the end of the next day, so October 26th, 55 kamikazes had carried out missions. Can you imagine for like 48 hours, just 55 planes trying to fly and crash into you? Well, I mean, that, that was going to be my next question. Just think about the guys on the crew and, and think about this as a new tactic. You know, it's kind of understandable to your point. If you see a plane that's smoking and it's not going to get back to base yeah. and it turns and it's just going to try to ram something. Yeah. That makes sense. You're not necessarily out of your mind. Mm-hmm. You don't think the pilot's out of his mind. Right. But this is a time where you might flip and be like, "Wow, I kind of thought we were gonna like maybe win this war, and now these people are just they're nah, we're yeah. gonna make them kill them. Yeah. We're gonna they're gonna make us kill them all." Right. It it, it really shows the resolve yeah. of of them and like, uh, yeah, that it's that's an absolutely crazy thing to yeah. It's so different than just being able to put up some air fire to like make it so that they don't, they can't go in like their bombing run or they have to like go around again. And then right. maybe you got, you have to shoot this thing down. Otherwise it's going to hit you. Mm-hmm. It's nuts. Yeah. Uh, and it was kind of, I guess taken by surprise, right? Cause they weren't expecting this tactic. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so the total damage over those, I don't know, a week or so, seven aircraft carriers were hit. 40 other ships were hit as well. Five, five of them sunk 23 heavily damaged, 12 moderately damaged. Because of these early successes, air quotes there, mm-hmm. uh, the program was expanded, right? <laughs> they were like, we got to get this going. More. Yeah. There were 2,000 attacks over the next few months. Wow. Um, then Japan started getting hit by these B-29 Super Fortress planes that we had, these giant bombers. So mm-hmm. they started targeting these aircraft. Obviously. ramming the, the aircraft. Yeah, which proved to be a lot harder than hitting these slower-moving giant aircraft carriers. Yeah, right? yeah. So... 
one, they were more mobile. They were faster. They had tons of like, I guess, uh, weaponry on the side that could help, you know, they had gunners on the left and the right and the tail and the top. Yeah. Uh, also plus their own fighters, probably, uh, protecting them as well. Right. Like, yeah, they would have their own set of, of fighter planes. planes. Yeah. Yeah. Plus let's not forget Japanese didn't have the greatest pilots at the time anymore. Right. Right. A lot of them. They were all new inexperienced pilots failed missions. Basically. They couldn't quite get these bombers out of the sky. One thing I'm surprised to hear uh, in this is that the Zero, the their plane, mm-hmm. uh, we sort of like caught up to it. It seems because oh yeah, because the Zero was sort of like the plane at the time, right? Uh, like going into World War II, right? And then, but um, you think about, uh, I mean, the British Air Force, I guess the Naval Air Force, they had like the Sea Fires, which was like the Spitfire, Spitfire, yeah. They had a pretty, I guess, prolific. Uh, Air Force and Navy and that kind of thing as yeah. well, right? Yeah, dominancy of the air was sort of... I mean, the Battle of Britain, that's sort of how they yeah. stayed in the war. And I think industry, industrially, Japan had been caught up to and surpassed by yeah. the Allied forces yeah. at this point. But yeah, the Zero, I'd always thought was like a pretty fast plane, mm-hmm. kind of heavy and like much faster than a lot of the, the planes we had at the time. Yeah. And then the P-51 sort of like caught up a bit, but, mm-hmm. but yeah. And apparently, I didn't realize this, but we were... The reason for taking the Philippines and all that was to cut off the oil supply from Southeast Asia to Japan. Mm. So that was a big area uh, for battles and everything. Like that. Yeah. Uh, another defense mechanism that somebody came up with was the big blue blanket. So it was an allied defense mechanism. And basically they would have around the clock aerial patrol. It's called a picket. So they set up basically ways to, you extend your radar range. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're about 80 kilometers away from the center of the fleet with different kinds of destroyers as well as a bunch of aircraft and that kind of thing. So one, you could either try and shoot them down before they got there, or you could at least warn the fleet that this was coming. This was pretty successful, I think, as well. Yeah. I would think if you targeted all of your anti-aircraft that was that was on a, uh aircraft carrier or destroyer or something, you could put up a lot of... Firepower. Fire, firepower to maybe yeah. make it, like, it explode, and maybe it does crash into you, but you only get moderate damage. Yeah. And you're not taking the full force of yeah. whatever this bomb is. <clears throat> I read something as well. They had uh, at one point technology for the for like the anti aircraft rounds. They had like uh, like radio radio detonators on them, so I guess they could explode within a certain radius of these planes. Mm. It's kind of more like a shotgun, right? Like it. So if it got if you know you fire this thing out there and it got near it, but it wasn't directed, it doesn't it was, need to be perfect. I could be completely wrong about that. That's what it sounded like when I was reading. Hmm. Yeah. Um. The peak period of kamikaze attacks was from April to June 1945 around the Battle of Okinawa. At least 30 warships were sunk or put out of action. Uh, the U.S. fleet took way more casualties and way more damage. One, in part, because <clears throat> they had wooden flight decks compared to the armored steel flight decks of the, of the British Navy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, you know, you hit the wooden flight deck, a lot more damage done easily. Yeah. Way more casualties. 389 men were killed during one attack on the USS Bunker Hill, which is more than the combined number of fatalities for all six Royal Navy carriers. Wow. Yeah. Uh, So just to recap, approximately 2,800 kamikaze attackers sank about 34 Navy ships, damaged 368 others, killed 4,900 sailors, and wounded over 4,800. Excuse me. Despite radar detection and queuing, uh, airborne interception, attrition, all that kind of stuff, right? 14% of kamikazes survived to score a hit on the ship, which is different than the 18% I said earlier. It just came from the same article, which is kind of weird now mm. that I'm looking at it. So 14 to 18% were successful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and nearly 8.5% of all ships hit by kamikazes sank. Huh. Yeah. So, I mean, it's somewhat successful. I mean, if you're... Successful, to your point about, in quotes, it kind of depends on how you define successful. Yeah. But they were looking at just anything they could do to turn the tide. Yeah. Didn't work. Yeah. But. If anything, I, th- I think it, it it did have a positive kill ratio. Yeah. But you did have to create a whole plane to, to do it. A lot of resources. It. A lot of resources go behind that. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, I mean, if anything, I think it just... Can you imagine the stories and, and how that moves back to the U.S. Like people at home, like the Japanese are killing themselves flying their planes, and it just it yeah. totally changes your perception of the enemy. Yeah, and I think if anything, that could be the the the, the most longest lasting effect of the kamikaze. Right, 
I mean, even like you kind of bring it up to a modern day version, suicide but bombers suicide bombers and yeah, I mean, there's no, they're completely gone. They're, yeah, well, I mean, their no greatest, their greatest gift isn't life. It's like whatever comes after, after for them. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, that's crazy. Which it's similar in this lore, like yeah. the Japanese lore that they're going for is like You'd eternal life in your in in your patriotism yeah. to to your country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's kamikaze. Good topic. Did you ever see that um, uh, Curvy Enthusiasm? I where, can't remember it. Oh, I've seen them all, I feel like, at this point. But. Larry uh, is going to a Japanese sushi restaurant, and then he goes to uh, Old Timer's home, uh-huh. and there's a guy there, an old Japanese guy, who's a, who's a kamikaze pilot. And Larry's like, whoa, what does that mean? So he's a failed kamikaze pilot. He pulled up at the end. Got to watch this episode. Couldn't find his target. Couldn't find his target. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, great topic. Thanks. Michael, one thing I learned this week is I learned there are two configurations to the keyboard. Like the QWERTY keyboard? Uh-huh. So there's QWERTY. Yeah. Q-W-E-R-T-Y. Uh-huh. You know, the top Correct. row. And the other is called the the Dvorak layout. Dvorak. Dvorak. Huh. Uh, it came, and so the QWERTY keyboard came out in the late 1800s. Yeah. Uh, with the first design of the typewriter. And then the Dvorak key layout came out in the 1930s. So it's newer. It's a little bit newer. And they said, so is the Dvorak supposed to be better? It's supposed to be better depending on on what how you define better is, yeah. how, how that is. Well, QWERTY's better because I know how to use it. Uh, that's right. Yeah. But so with QWERTY, about 16% of the typing is done on the lower row, 52% on the top row, and only 32% on what they call the, the home row. The home row. row. Yeah. The home row. Hmm. I don't know. I, did, I think I did do a typing class at some point, but yeah. But with the with the Dvorak layout, seventy percent is on the home row, twenty two percent on the bottom, only eight percent on top. Yeah, but I mean, it's just going to take me too long to readjust. Well, so I was reading a bunch of articles talking about like, oh, if I had written this article on the Dvorak keyboard, my fingers would have only traveled thirty meters, while, while as with the QWERTY keyboard, they had to travel fifty five meters. Huh. So hey. Do you know what the longest word you can type with just your left hand if you use proper technique? No. Do you know? Stewardess, I believe. Stewardess. Yeah. Oh. I think it's stewardess. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's one thing I learned. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, one thing I learned is that uh, this national shutdown is not just affecting humans. I mean, obviously, we know it's infecting the environment, but it's really having a, it's taking a toll on rats. Uh-huh. Do you know this? I did. I saw a little article about this. Yeah. So rats, uh, they obviously rely on restaurants and grocery stores and stuff like that for food. And with fewer of them being open, a lot of them shut down, especially in big cities. Rats are forming armies to take over <laughs> food sources, essentially. <laughs> this guy, uh, Bobby Corrigan, he's an urban rodentologist, was saying that wow. uh, just like men, you know, go to claim land and they fight to the death. These rats are going to start fighting over food source areas, and whoever's the stronger rats are going to win. Hmm. Uh, and so they're um, they're like developing allegiances. I guess to they're teaming up. They're somehow. teaming up. Yeah, they're seeing it better. Like Maybe more. It's, uh, uh, it's better to be a part of a big group than it is to be out on your own as a rat. You know, I guess so. I don't know uh, how rats live typically like if they're in packs or something like that either way yeah but it could be something like that right like they're this is their family or whatever this is their and they're gonna go fight for this scrap of bread outside of this uh nando's peri peri yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah they're also uh turning to cannibalism and infanticide they're gonna start killing their babies and eating their babies all of a sudden we're gonna have some new even worse super bug yeah yeah for sure uh but there's like been videos of Bourbon Street with just like 30 rats on like an empty Bourbon Street just running around just running for food. Around. Yeah. Uh, in D.C., uh, Bowser, Mayor Bowser, mm-hmm. has uh, she made pest control an essential service. And over the last 30 days, there's been more than 600 calls about pest control, like rodent control to 311. Wow. And 1,100 in Baltimore. Wow. Yeah. So I can't imagine what New York's like. I mean, these guys are probably just going crazy. And, you know, there's obviously tons of homeless people that have to deal with this now and share the streets with these. That's right. With these, like, hungry rats. Well, I mean, they were there before. Right, they were but just, they were they're, But they're now more, yeah, yeah, they, 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 they had their eating patterns mm-hmm. and they had their places, but now they've been pushed to the brink. Yeah, their food supply has been cut off, basically. Well, I wonder what's happening with the Rat Academy. That's a good question. Yeah. 
I thought about maybe not doing rats just because we've already kind of covered that. But that was season one. That was season one. That was season and this two. is an update. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, so that's what I learned. I did see something else that were like rabid dogs and stuff in other countries. Oh, that, really? Yeah, that are, that, you know, they'd be huddled around places and they'd just get food fed to them, mm-hmm. you know? But now that people aren't there to do it. And you know, when you're hungry, crazy. you don't think straight. You don't think clearly. You might eat your baby. That's right. The uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Correct. If you're hungry... You don't want to talk about philosophy. When he's hungry, we're going to eat. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's what I learned. All right, Michael. Mm-hmm. So in season one, I actually did cover this. And this was in our deleted episode. Oh. The only one of season oh, one. Oh, I forgot this was even about. Yeah. Track meets or something? <laughs> I decided to return to the subject okay. to do it a little bit better because uh-huh. I didn't like it then. Yeah. Ended up on the cutting room floor. It did. The only one. The only one. Yeah. Michael, tell me what you know about jogging. 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 That's what jogging. it was. Uh, well, luckily, it was so boring the first time you did it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember anything. You don't remember a damn thing. <laughs> uh, uh, it is a form of exercise. Mm-hmm. Possibly one of the worst forms of exercise. You don't like to jog? Not in terms of for you, just in, in, for me personally. So, sometimes I don't even like, I don't really like calling it jogging. You go for a run. Just run. You go for a run. Yeah. Running. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, it's yeah. I'm some a people delineate the two. Well, you're a runner. You're not a jogger. Well, some people like to say that running is a little bit more intensive. Uh huh. Like, jogging is just like this casual thing. I don't okay. know. Uh, I think I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's a form of exercise where you you move your legs faster than a walking pace. Both at at some point you're not touching the ground. <laughs> you're right. So that's. That's, the, That's how the Olympics, at least, delineate between walking, walking and jogging. Running. Yeah, you got to get off the ground. Yeah, wa- when you're doing the walking races, you have to have one throw on the ground at all times. Did you ever do speed walking? Yeah, all the time. You can. It was like okay, uh, speed walking is basically doing the elliptical, but in public. Yeah, that's true. You can't. It's impossible to look cool doing either one of those things. That's true. Yeah. Uh, is running like not? Where would you rank it on your terms of exercises? Like, uh, I do it, but I'm really bad at it. Would you rather go swim or run? Swim. Swim. A thousand times over. Really? Yeah. Well, why, why do you think it's so much worse? I'm just not, I don't have good endurance for that kind of thing, I that, feel like. Huh. Yeah. I don't know. I could ride a bike all day. I think you could build up the endurance for Probably. Running. I just dislike it so much that I won't let myself get to that, that point. point. Yeah. I'm sure if I like made myself do it for a month. I'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, you'd be I good can to do go. this a little better now. Yeah. But, like if I like my running exercises typically are more like, uh, uh, what's the what's the word I'm looking for? It's broken up, right? So it's like Inter- interval, inter- interval type yeah, stuff. Interval type stuff. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Um, but yeah, it's hot in here. So. Yeah, it is kind of hot in here. It's getting hot. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, jogging, the form of recreational running. <laughs> it didn't. What, what's interesting about this is it's like it had to have started with somebody. Yeah. Somebody had to just been out running, and everyone's like. What are you doing, crazy person? Right. What are you doing? Well, it was a guy from Marathon. Right. So oh, we were talking about doing it for exercise yeah, and recreation. Like pure, even that wasn't for recreation. No, that was for so, war. Yeah, so we can jump to that. 490 BC, uh, <laughs> Pheidippides. Pheidippides. Pheidippides runs from Marathon to Athens yeah. to deliver the news of victory at the Battle of Marathon. It's about 26 and he miles. Dies, 26.2. Yeah. He dies when he gets to the finish line. Huh. It's like the whole lore of it. Right. Um, the story was written down like hundreds of years after this happened so who really knows the true story yeah but uh but yeah that's the lore of it but even he wasn't running just to run no so right so who who was this this loser that was like you know move my body a little faster and get in better shape i didn't find an exact person that would be like this person was the one yes but um a little bit more so like in the 50s was when the four minute mile was broken mm-hmm. so it was like track and field was absolutely around but it was more that was a sport like you did it for sport so uh roger banister yep. 1954 broke the four minute mile uh current record is three minutes and 43 seconds right the, the interesting thing about roger banister is that it kind of the, the four minute mile sort of is now seen as this uh, hard to hard to break barrier mm-hmm and then you once you break through it, a bunch of people break it. Yeah. Like it, it's like this. It's like the sound barrier or something. You you try to beat it, and then once one person does once it, everybody else. Yeah. So it's kind of taken on some new meaning, I think. Now I'm just but, thinking now if I sprinted at my full speed, if I could sprint at my full speed for three minutes and forty three seconds, how far I would go. I don't think it'd be close to a mile. 
I have doubts I could I could even get up to a four minute pace. It's so fast. These guys are like yeah. I if I did eight minutes, I'd be like, all right, that's a good time for me. Yeah, yeah. But do you think you could even run for ten seconds the pace that you would need to do oh, a four minute? Yeah, I don't know. Mile? I talking about the pace. Yeah, I have Just no the idea. Pace. I, I, they're like twenty miles per hour. Almost. Yeah, no. I mean, you're cruising. Is that is that even close to right? I think it's close to right. Uh, for, <laughs> Well, for a four minute, it'd be less than that. But yeah, I was looking at. That but yeah, no, you're you're just cruising. Yeah. Like, like probably like 15 miles an hour. You're mm-hmm. Like I think you're at a full out. What would look like a full out sprint? Yeah, for 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 a whole mile. Yes. Um. All right. So then in the 60s, uh, I I kind of brought this up on the other episode, which it's the last time I'll talk about that mm-hmm. shitty episode. <laughs> 1968, uh, Senator Strom Thurmond. Oh, good old Strom Thurmond, South Carolina. Yeah, not a great guy, mm. but he was pulled over by the cops because he was out jogging. And they're like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm out jogging. And everyone was like, what? What does that I mean? I thought he was running from something? Yeah, like- or it, to something? There were other uh, uh, instances of people that were in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, multiple instances of, in Chicago where people were pulled, like, just stopped, pulled over, and been yeah. like, what are you doing? You're a crazy person? Right. Uh, and- just, so some people didn't run at night because people would look at them even crazier. Right. Wow. So this is in the '60s. Also in the '60s. So get to our kind of um, I would put him up on like a Mount Rushmore of jogging. Bill Bowerman. Everybody knows who that is. So Bill Bowerman was the head track and field running coach at Oregon. Okay. Okay. So at Oregon, um, he also was like he coached the Olympics. He was kind of like the the running godfather yeah at that time um he went to new zealand where i actually i think more of this jogging culture sort of originated it's kind of funny uh and he came back from new zealand after kind of finding this newfound like running for fitness uh movement and he wrote a book called um called jogging okay (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, with with a cardiologist, and it sold millions of copies. It sold a million copies in, okay. in the '60s, and so everyone was like, "Oh, what is this like new way that you can keep yourself fit?" Kind of thing, and, right. and the other benefits you get from from running. Uh, Bill Bowerman is also the co-founder of Blue Ribbon Sports, which was later Nike ah. with Phil Knight. Okay, so uh, move on to now another uh, Mount Rushmore guy, Phil Knight. Phil Knight founded Nike at the time, Blue Ribbon. He was a runner at Oregon in the fifties, and you know ran under Bill Bowerman. So when he started to want to, I'm going to create a shoe company. Yeah, uh, he went to to Bill and was like, if, you, if I have you as like my partner, you're going to really open up the world of different mm-hmm. things I can go do. So right. uh, that's when he like used him to sort of secure a deal with these uh, Japanese shoe manufacturers. Yes, and. Started importing Japanese shoes, and the rest. Started making a lot of uh, rich, rich Japanese children. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> they were able to get a wage over there. Apparently, he he didn't really. They didn't get into the manufacturing until China. Okay, we'll bring it up. Shoe Dog is is Phil Knight's biography. Right, so good. Okay, I read it like six eight months ago. Yeah, uh, awesome. around the same time. Really this recommend podcast it. was first recorded. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's why I was like, oh, I'll do I'll do running. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's Phil Knight's lifelong runner. There's stories in the book of him like going out and logging five, six, seven mile runs like at the end of the day just to clear his head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's like a um a, a through line with with runners is like the mental um aspects, the mental uh the anxiety it, it takes off of you. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of pretty similar with other people you'd heard about. Okay. Um, and then Bill Bowerman and Phil Knight were always like shoe tinkering. Bowerman for sure, like figuring out that what's the best way to design a shoe for running, and that's kind of also got. He would do like different um, different shoes for the students that he would have run. So he'd go test them out, and they'd break down, and he'd rebuild them, and all that stuff. So then, uh, also in the in the sixties, now in the seventies, I think you had Prefontaine. Who's that? So Prefontaine was a runner at the University of Oregon. There's been like, several movies you might have seen with him. That's his whole Pre. name? Yeah. Pre-Fontaine. He's one of those guys that... Is it two he, words or one? It's one word, oh, okay. Pre-Fontaine. Okay. It's like Seal. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, people just know him as Pre-Fontaine. He, yeah, he's like Seal, Madonna. Pele. But people mostly call him Pre. Okay, of course. So he was just this like absolute running phenom. Mm-hmm. Not 
on the face of it. Like, I, I don't think he was technically like more talented than other runners, but he was just such an all out runner. His first name is Steve. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't, <laughs> yes. But he, no, he's just Prefontaine. <laughs> on this podcast, Michael, he's Prefontaine. <laughs> uh, there's a movie with, uh, um, oh, what's his face? I'm forgetting the actor's name. Really good movie. Pre. Jared Leto. That's Jared Leto. He looks, I'm looking at the picture of it now. He looks yeah. pretty funny. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, pre, I mean, there was the 70s, long, right. flowy hair. Stash. Stash. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Prefontaine is, is quoted as saying, the best pace is a suicide pace, and today looks like a good day to die. To give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. Somebody may beat me, but they are going to have to bleed to do it. And it was sort of like this. One, he was really good. He was really fast. He held a lot of records at the time. Mm-hmm. I think he might still hold some records. Um, and then he was also this personality above and beyond. Like he was a good-looking guy. Yeah. He ran at this just torrential, torrential pace. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna die or before you beat me. And I think it just he created, he created like a cultural icon for himself. He's he a, became a cultural icon. He's a running kamikaze. Basically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna run my, run you into the ground. Yeah. Um, and so I think culturally people just kind of attached to him. Mm-hmm. So that kind of birthed this boom of the, of running in the 1970s. Uh, I think it went into the eighties, but I think sort of slowed down and then kind of came back in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, like things like the Boston marathon, the New York marathon started being televised a lot more interest in the seventies runners world magazine was founded. This is sort of a interesting, this got cited as like a, a, a milestone, of running becoming more popular but wouldn't you need popularity in something to necessitate a magazine it's kind of like a chicken and egg issue here yeah what do you think about it? i mean well i mean there's also there's, it could have been a, a small a super small magazine that was very niche and then the and running bigger. goes crazy and people are like oh wow look at this runners week what is it called Runners uh, Weekly, <laughs> Runners World Magazine Runners World Magazine I think there's there's several publications Runners there, there Digest were, yeah uh, and then there were a lot of other like popular authors that would publish things that they were also runners. Yeah. So it was kind Sounds of like the, a biography filler to me. All right. I enjoy running. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then in the nineties, in the nineties you had Oprah and president Bill Clinton come out as saying that they use running, uh, Oprah. Yeah. Oprah's a big runner. Jogger. Uh, is she? <laughs> she, she jogs. I think she's done some marathons. Okay. Yeah, hey. What are you saying, Michael? She does not seem to be a jogger. She doesn't appear to be a jogger. I don't know. Well, 90s was kind of another big boom for running. Uh, Yeah. And and now it's it's a multi-multi-billion dollar a year industry. Just all Mm. the different uh, marathons, the competitions, the races that people do. Uh, You you wake up in the morning, that road's closed because a bunch of people are running. Yeah. It's really annoying. Nah. You're not up that early. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, done by a 12. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the Olympics, okay. running in the Olympics, running for competition, basically. Uh, so, yeah, so there's races for speed and then there's races for distance. Uh, and obviously, this is all kind of races in time, mm-hmm. right? So, there's the 100 meter, the 200 meter, the 400 meter, 800 meter, and a 1500 meter five and 10,000 meter runs. So those are the different classes. It goes from 100 meters to 10,000 meters. Okay. All in the Olympics. There's 110 meter hurdles, 400 meter hurdles, and then there's a 3,000 meter steeplechase. And then there's a relay event with multiple people. Uh, They do 400 meters, so those are just like full out sprints, Mm -hmm. and four 400 meters. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's obviously the marathon, but then they also have uh, a 20 kilometer and a 50 kilometer. Okay. I think the marathon here is the, the longest. Okay. Um, so the current, I, I, you probably saw a little bit of this. The current record holder is Yuliad Kipchoge. <laughs> Kipchoge. He's from uh, Kenya. Okay. Uh, he recently set the 159 number. That was, was for some, what? Sorry. For the marathon. miles. Yes, yes, yes. This was maybe what you saw. They did this in Italy. It was not in a competition. This was just to break two hours. He had a pacer and everything. He had a pace car. He had runners with him. Like he was was drafting. He was drafting behind this whole team of runners. Yeah. That were also like the best runners in the world. Right. So it was mostly just to see how fast he could do it. 
basically it was it was can, like you, can, this, you, can i break two hours in exactly yeah. this four minute mile for the marathon is two hours yeah which is just absolutely it's absolutely crazy yeah that's like watching somebody full on you would not be able to keep up with these guys for if, 10 for 10 meters no yeah that you need a car to like follow them they just yeah. like fly by you but yeah in this event they you can watch it on youtube now which i kind of want to check it out but like well, it's kind of skip boring. around it's kind of boring yeah uh, but I like had, when they crap themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't stop. You gotta tape up your nipples. That's right. Uh, yeah, the uh, uh, they had like lines that were projected on the ground. I think for the runners to pace themselves better to give better drafting. And then Nike had this specific shoe that was created. It's like the fly fly knit or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there are people saying that it might give you too much bounce, like more like a spring. Huh. So it kind of goes back to... Uh, it's like Vince Carter with Vince, the Nike shocks. Kind of like those. <laughs> I was going to say like Pistorius. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's like ultra. Yeah. I mean, those are yeah. fake feet. That's right. Uh, but yeah, minute, uh, one hour and 59 minutes. Absolutely insane. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, the super crazy people, ultra marathons, mm-hmm. these can be anything like 24-hour races. You run for a full 24 hours, 100-mile races. Um, and then they put those in like really harsh conditions. Like they have one through death Valley in California. Yeah. It's like, it doesn't get below hundred degrees no matter what time of day it is. Yeah. You got to run on a white line. Otherwise your shoes will they hit melt. the black asphalt and, and melt. Uh, seems really miserable. Yeah. seems horrible. <sighs> so there's two people I would, I would point out to with, with this. The first is David Goggins. Mm-hmm. He's this former Navy seal guy. Absolute beast. Just, yeah. He's, I've listened to him on a, on a Rogan podcast and he's definitely dealing with some demons to yeah. be able to do this and like push himself this hard. But, um, but man, he also has like the world record holder or was the world record holder for pull-ups like 4,000 in 17 hours or something. It's just like, he does these crazy, almost mind. It, it's as much a physical feat as it is a mental one. Right. You know? Yeah. So crazy. The other, there's this girl, mm-hmm. Courtney, Courtney Dillwater. D-A-U, Walter. Dull Walter. Yeah. She runs in like, basically like, NBA shorts that don't fit her. They look, it look she looks kind of like a, I don't know what I, the, the only reason why I bring this up is, she looks like a, a sorority girl that shacked at some guy's uh, house. Okay. And like, just wears, wears out the NBA shorts and yeah. like, a white shirt. Right. She basically runs in this. She won, uh, 2017 Moab 240 in two days, nine hours, and 59 minutes. That's 240 miles through the Moab desert. She says that she, when she sometimes runs, she she's hallucinating, and she sometimes catches sleep like while she's running, <laughs> and that these hallucinations are like REM sleep almost, but she's still just like putting feet, like her feet in front of her body, Jesus. running. She, she's I mean, like on autopilot completely. Yeah, and, and in this, she killed, uh, she killed second place. The second place finisher was 10 hours behind her. This is men and women. Jesus. She's just an absolute phenom at this. Yeah. Just, I think you have to be built in different ways. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the benefits of running. Okay. All right. So, uh, the health benefits. Yeah. Uh, lowering blood pressure, lower resting heart rate, weight stabilization, mm-hmm. um, lower rates of heart disease and cancer, stronger muscle, stronger heart, stronger bones. Uh, and better sleep. Mm-hmm. So you get all these different benefits. Sounds like perineum sunning. As, I mean, would you rather go ten, run 10 miles or just sun your bum? Yeah. Uh, but then I think, as I mentioned, the mental aspect I think is pretty critical. I'm sure you've heard of people call runner's high. Yeah. Have you ever experienced runner's high? No. Even off like the bike or anything? Off a of Peloton? You never got no, it? I mean, I've like, gotten, oh, I just feel great. Yeah, I've definitely done that. But not from running. Oh, okay. Well, it's all the same. Yeah, okay. It's like feelings yes. of being like in yes. the zone, right? Uh, yeah. So really what these feelings are, are like the endorphins mm-hmm. of be, that are being released. And I think there's, it's still, I don't I think there are a lot of questions still that can be done through research, but there's been connections to almost like a, uh, endocannabinoid that uh-huh. would be something similar to like smoking pot or yep. something that gives you the same feelings, these same endorphins. Okay get into your brain make yeah, yeah. you feel great but i also wonder if it's like does your brain do this so that you can like offset the pain you're going through right i don't know maybe 
it's almost like a, it's just like a, you're worn out, but you feel good about being worn out. But mostly that's just like, oh, you actually, for me, it's like, oh, you moved today. Good you job. Accomplished. You <laughs> yeah. accomplished something. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that was going to be my next thing. It's like running is a gateway for change, I think, for people. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't really know the next thing to do, running can just be a thing that you can go control. You can go do this. Yeah. You know? You don't really need anything. You don't really need anything. You can go out. You can run. You can feel good afterwards. It kind of gives you like a clarity. Yeah. Uh, it's simple. You know? Just run yep um so there's been a lot of stories about people getting their lives together obviously losing weight would be like a byproduct of it yeah but people who can kind of feel lost and then they start running they get direction it's a life change it's a life change yeah um we have some famous people who like to run will ferrell okay uh ryan reynolds yes touched on oprah right uh george w bush prolific runner big runner big runner when he was in the the white house he would run Sometimes three miles a day, wake up early, uh, knock him out. I remember he always talking about his time. Was the Secret Service had to run around with him? Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he would actually have a pretty fast pace mm-hmm. too. He was running like three miles in like twenty minutes, twenty one minutes. Yeah, that's not bad. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, and for like a fifty five year old guy, sixty five year old guy, that's I mean that's pretty good. Yeah. He'd go out to said he'd go out to Camp David and have like really hard runs. Mm-hmm. He'd try to like beat that 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 pace. Um. Travis Barker, drummer, Blink Blink 182. Yeah. Uh, Drew Carey used used running to lose a lot of weight. I nice. think he had the stomach yes. stapling and then maybe ran and lost like 85 pounds. Yeah. Uh, Bobby Flay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My notes, I wrote him. He missed the second B. He's Booby Flay. <laughs> oh, Booby. Uh, Alicia Keys and Reggie Miller. Reggie Miller enjoys trail running. Doesn't really enjoy the... He's quoted as saying, I've run over some rattlesnakes or two. I had to jump over a couple. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's my that's my that's the end of my research. That's awesome. On jogging, running. Well, I'm glad that's we got, got. You, you got a second attempt at it. This one was much better. This one felt way better. Yeah. Yeah. Thoughts were there. Yeah. There's a line in uh Back to the Future part three uh-huh. where they're in the old west. Right. And uh Doc Brown is telling the guys at the saloon. Like, oh, in the future, there'll be cars and all these different stuff. And and uh, people was like, people will, will run. And everyone was like, run? Run for fun? He's <laughs> like, no, for recreation. Right. It's such a crazy thing to do. Yep. I'm just going to go run. Yep. But I encourage everyone to go give it go a try. Around. It can be a life-changing experience. It's raining today. Hey, sometimes you got to run Yeah. through the rain. I'm going on a bike ride for my house, my virtual bike ride. That's right. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Uh, again, this is the first episode of the second season. Hope you enjoyed this new little format. Yeah, let us know. Sound yeah. off. Yeah. And uh, we'll be back next week for more. See ya.